Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg, in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So this is the first of a short series that we're doing about climate justice. It's a bit kind of stand back and survey because so much has happened. And of course, we haven't managed to cover too much. So in this first podcast, we're going to take a look at the big one, the one that kind of encompasses it all, the United Nations General Assembly Resolution, which has requested an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on climate change. Now, for those listeners who don't know the ICJ, what we at Reuters call the World Court, it settles disputes between states, but it can also be asked for advisory opinions on legal matters by certain UN bodies, including the UN General Assembly. And while they are not binding, these ICJ advisory opinions, they do carry a great deal of legal weight and moral weight, and they do play a huge role in shaping international law. So let's wind back to 2019 and... It was then that there was a group called the Pacific Islands Students Fighting Climate Change came together. And just to say, we've got an interview coming up with them later in this series to understand their road into climate activism. And they wanted to urge leaders of the Pacific Island Forum to bring up this issue of climate change to the ICJ. And eventually the small island state of Vanuatu took up the mantle. Finally, on March 29th of this year, the UN General Assembly adopted the resolution, uh, which was originally supported by 132 other states, asking for a non-binding advisory opinion from the ICJ on climate change. And this was significant because it's the first time that this, the world's highest court, has been asked to answer questions on nations' obligations in regard to the climate. So in this episode, we are chatting to Margareta Weverinka-Singh. She teaches at the University of Amsterdam and she's lead counsel for the state of Vanuatu. Here's her summary of what the advisory opinion is asking of the court. In this case, the resolution uh, contains a legal legal question that has basically two elements. So that, that is the question that the UN General Assembly, that is all UN member states are asking the court to answer. And so that question asks first about the obligations of states to protect present and future generations, basically from the adverse effects of climate change to combat climate change, you can say. And then secondly, it asks about the legal consequences for states that essentially fail to do so. So as you heard, the question being asked of the court has two parts. First, they are looking at what the legal obligations of states are. And secondly, the legal consequence uh, that would ensue from not meeting those obligations. Now, part of the obligations which Margareta is referring to here are parts of international agreement, like the Paris Climate Agreement, which aims to hold the warming of the Earth's surface below two degrees. But the resolution put forward by Vanuatu is a lot more complicated than just looking at states' obligations in relation to the Paris Agreement. It also brings together a host of other treaties and aspects of international law. And in the rest of our chat with Margarita, we try to pinpoint exactly the legal arguments that are being made and what the movement behind this are hoping to achieve with the proceedings over the coming months. In in your request, you reference many elements of international law, uh, or the request that you, that Vanuatu sent, that the UNGA finally sent. You reference the Human Rights Declaration, the Law of the Sea, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Are you just betting on all the horses all at once, or, or is there a reason to name all of them? 
Yes, of course, this is part of a uh, carefully thought through legal strategy. And the request is really aimed at inviting the courts to bring the whole of international law, at least the relevant parts with so many, to bear on climate change. The reason being that we don't, we won't have the strongest possible and necessary legal basis for action if we just look at international climate change law in isolation without seeing it in, in the broader international law context. Of course, these two treaties are very important and set a framework for um, for international collaboration and also do contain very important substantive obligations. But it's only when you see the full kind of tapestry of norms and principles of international law that are applicable that you can really understand what international law as it is requires of states to address this crisis and its consequences. So we look at, for example, the Article 1 of the 1966 Human Rights Covenant, the right to self-determination and the right of a people not to be deprived of their means of subsistence. Such a norm is, is critical, of course, for uh, for the people of Vanuatu and other cities, as well as many other people um, around the world whose livelihoods, whose means of subsistence are already very much at risk as a result of climate change. In some cases have already been basically eliminated, where, where entire communities have been forced to relocate, leave their traditional lands, etc., so these norms are relevant and must be considered in understanding the promise, if you will, of international law to really guide the world um, towards a way out of this crisis. And the way that you've um, framed this and you know, the, the broadness of the question that you've put in these two parts, it feels like you're really, really trying to force states to actually do something on climate change. And you're asking the court to take a very, I don't know if this is the right term, kind of progressive attitude that the court can feel that it can force states to do something. Is that a, a way to understand what the attempt is? Well, it's not so much forcing. And, and yeah, of course, the court also wouldn't have power to force states to do anything as such. It's probably more about assisting states by clarifying really what their obligations are and also what the consequences are of non-compliance with those obligations, which also then translates, of course, in entitlements for those who are affected or injured by what can be characterized as an internationally wrongful act. So for states to really understand what is required will help also in facilitating responses that are more aligned with the science than they currently are and more aligned with equity, very importantly. In terms of equity, are you expecting a lot of states to join in with specific arguments that support elements of, of what you're arguing? I mean, particularly this idea of historical fairness? Yes, we are very optimistic about the level of participation that um, that we may see in the legal procedure proceedings. Of course, um, it is, especially for small states, it is quite a task to participate in these proceedings. There are always capacity constraints, but we do not know that there's a great interest. And 
Of course, we can also see from the number of co-sponsors of the UNGA resolution, which is more than 100, that states do feel that this very important request that is being made of the court. And of course, all states have an interest in this issue. It's not, not an issue in some of the other, or most, probably most of the other advisory proceedings before the courts. There were issues that were indirectly relevant uh, for states, but often concerned very specific situations. While here, um, the court is really addressing a, a global problem that affects states in different ways, um, but it does affect all states. And so um, that in itself is probably for, for many states a reason to at least very seriously consider participating. What it sounds like to me is that you're asking the, the International Court of Justice to kind of give a state of the union a, or like a, a state of play of what states under international law really should be doing about climate change. And you're looking for the court, it seems from your, of your application, that for the court to say that it shouldn't be discretionary by states, that they shouldn't get to pick and choose whether they do something, but that it's a matter of due diligence. Now, what does that mean practically? So indeed, it, it is what you say it is, that there is, a, there is an obligation, it is not a matter of discretion. And so that means that, well, the, the level of ambition must go up. So it would need to translate in more ambitious NDCs, which then collectively, if you look at the collective level of ambition, must be aligned with the temperature goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, at, at the very least. So that's currently not the case. And so and then is, of course, the question as to what each individual state needs to do, right? It will differ. And the court's guidance will clarify at least what, what factors, what benchmarks should be applied in, underst in understanding whether a particular state's level of ambition meets what, what is required under substantive obligations. And there may be more on also ways in which uh, ambition must materialize, that that's, uh, the court may say something about that. And then what that practically means is that you know, there is more the, the discussion in, for example, under the global stock take where states, states assess the level of ambition under the Paris agreements that can benefit from the court's kind of inputs into the discussion. But of course, the court's opinion, clarification of law, can also be used in other ways. So hopefully in environment or climate or other ministries around the world, civil servants will and politicians will take this to heart and see how policies can be aligned with what the court has said must be done. But of course, in case where that doesn't happen, the court's opinion may also provide additional inspiration or legal ground for, for litigation. And that can be in pending cases. It can be in new cases because there's, of course, much to build upon already, but we do not have guidance from the ICJ as such. And you talk about in, in your submission also, and, and, and we repeated it here, this due diligence. I know this from like uh, business takeovers. Uh, what does it mean in this case for a state to have to do due diligence when it comes to environmental protection? I don't want to go um, 
too deep on it because, of course, we are we do not have an opinion in our hands yet, and so we are very much also part of a legal process as ongoing. So I want to be a little bit careful. But what is clear is that it's more than just drafting an NDC and submitting it. Right? It is a substantive obligation that must be that must uh, that, that derives much of it, its content from. And the goals of the Paris Agreement also human rights obligations, such as right the, the right of peoples not to be deprived of their means of subsistence, for example. That will, if you match that with the science, then it will be clear that particular pathways can be followed and others can't be followed because they will put those rights at risk or result in violations of those rights. The way that you're talking about it, it feels to me that almost whatever results you get from the court, you consider it a success already because it will, whatever the court says on a number of levels, it will have a big influence. But how are you going to define a successful result yourself? It must be an advice that addresses both questions in a substantive way. And so, for example, an opinion that says that, okay, what are the obligations? Well, the obligations are that states must cooperate. And then what are the legal consequences that if the, if these obligations are violated, well, then states must cooperate. If they don't cooperate, then they must start doing that or something purely procedural. That would be a very underwhelming, disappointing outcome. So the outcome needs to be one where we see um, integration happening of different areas of international law. So the court really showing the world that it is a world court and it is this one court that can actually interpret, clarify and apply norms from different areas of international law holistically in a way that renders these norms effective and so provide help help the international community states to respond more effectively and, and meaningfully to this enormous global problem. So and of course that requires yeah that the court really engage in the art of interpretation and then distills those into an, an, an answer that's points at, obviously, greater climate ambition and equity, and then also spells out the legal consequences that occur when states do not comply with these obligations. And then these consequences are also, if they follow logically from such an interpretation, then these consequences are also substantial, and we know very well what they are, at least in the abstract it is obligations to seize internationally wrongful conduct and obligations to make full reparations for injury that is caused by that conduct. And so that is really important for states like Vanuatu that already suffered tremendous losses and damages as a result of climate change. So Cyclone Pem, for example, resulted in, um, in damage amounting to more than 64% of Vanuatu's GDP. And so a meaningful answer to the question posed by the UNGA would actually say something about obligations of states that have caused this harm vis-a-vis those who suffer it. 
So Janet, what happens now? Well, I was going to ask you that, Stephanie, because you're the uh, the person who knows best how the ICJ works. As far as I'm concerned, it just takes a long time. Yes, what I what I found, or how it works with advisory opinions, that they get asked this question to give an opinion, and then they start kind of gathering evidence and trying to figure out who wants to say something on this issue. And a lot of states uh, then can say, raise their hand and say, "Hey, I want to I want to make a submission on this," and then they. Uh, set a deadline for receiving those submissions, which I think they've already done in this case. And then once they've seen it and kind of thumbed through it, they're going to decide if they're going to have separate hearings on this. Uh, Usually, uh, yes, if there's so many states interested, then they're going to kind of arrange uh, a couple of days of hearings where states get to have their say in, in limited amount of time, and then they will issue an advisory opinion. But as everything with the ICJ, they have a full docket. It takes years in the other uh, ICJ proceeding, we had so many podcasts about the Chagos ruling. It was fairly soon. I think it was about two years after the request for an advisory opinion. They actually gave an advisory opinion. Possible outcomes are hard to predict. Again, in Chagos, Chagos was uh, was basically Mauritius was told it was right and that uh, the UK should hand over authority of Chagos. And because the court has no means of enforcing these decisions, then it becomes a kind of diplomatic and political game of how they are going to accept this decision into actual policy. And we see that Britain is still working on that. The thing that kind of strikes me, and I don't know whether you agree with this, Steph, is that when we spoke to Philippe Sands about Chagos, it became very clear how much they had kind of narrowed down the specificness of the question that they asked the ICJ to rule on in order to get the the strongest possible response from the ICJ. And they knew exactly which buttons to press and exactly how to get the result that they wanted. And to me, as a non-lawyer, this feels like a very broad attempt where they're asking the judges to to come up with a, a very wide set of considerations. And I'm just wondering in the end how narrowly you might expect the ICJ to rule. I mean, I know you're not a lawyer either, so maybe that's a bit of a of a swizz asking you that. But I, that's just what, what I'm wondering in the end is whether we'll get something that says, well, you know, the only thing we can consider is this. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen at the ICJ is that often when they have a chance to interpret something really narrowly and to not give like great sweeping statements, they will do so. They like to talk about the legal nitty gritty. So if uh, you have a more open question, I would say that my experience uh, with the ICJ judges is that they will take it in the narrowest possible sense. And I wonder if you have many kind of activist judges that want to enlarge that situation. They they always want to have a very firm legal basis. And this is all kind of new territory. There's not that much uh, international uh, echo uh, legislation. I mean, there's treaties and things like that, but even the Paris Agreement is fairly you know, new if you look at the other stuff that the ICJ is, is looking at. So... I wonder if this was this question was as precisely honed as the Chagos question and how many ICJ experts looked at it and said, this is what will get you the maximum answer. 
I don't know. Uh, I mean, there's a lot more uh, lawyerly lawyers uh, than us looked at it and, and legal minds looked at it. But yeah, I, I would say my experience is that the ICJ does not like to go out on a limb and I don't expect it to do so in this case. Uh, later on in the series, which we're calling kind of the Eco Files, we're going to have an interview about Ecoside, which is, uh, I think, the other big development that we've seen potential for criminal responsibility for damage uh, to the climate. And uh, we've also got one set up with the very young climate activists to try to understand how they pushed on this and how they've kind of navigated you know, the complexities of the international legal system and the international diplomacy. And we'd love to hear from you, our listeners, what else would you like us to cover in climate justice? And if you have suggestions, please um, mail them to us or drop them to us on Twitter. Meanwhile, we'd like to give a shout out to our latest supporters on Patreon, Juliet Redmond's Tiedras, Ronald Sly, uh, Megumi, OCHI Megumi, Jeanne Schulzer, and James O'Neill. James, thank you. You're a friend of mine. Thank you very much for uh, donating a cup of espresso every month to us. Much appreciated. So if you do want to support us like those people and you'd like to have your name read out on the podcast, do check out our Patreon. Uh, with the Patreon also comes our monthly book club for uh, some patrons. And if you don't want to be tied down to a monthly payment, check out our tip jar, which is on our website, the How to Support Us page, where you can just drop whatever tip you would want for us. We appreciate everything. Great. Thanks very much. Speak to you again soon, Steph. Thank you. Speak to you soon. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast. Created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. Music